culture marked by the fruit of the gospel. All churches who have come to know the grace of God should prioritize and pursue these qualities that are in keeping with the message of grace. In sovereign grace, the explicit gospel focus that has marked our history has led us to value seven particular, we call them, shaping virtues. Humility, joy, gratitude, encouragement, generosity, servanthood, and godliness. And of course, it's not an exhaustive list. None of us perfectly demonstrates these qualities. And uh, and for this reason, we press on for a fuller expression that these values and virtues would shape our lives. Ultimately, it's God who graciously creates and grows his qualities in his people, and he has promised to bring it to completion on the day of his return. So, as we labor to keep Christ central in Sovereign Grace Churches, of which we are one, our hope and prayers that these shaping virtues will present, will be present and increase in our churches in generations to come. Today, we'll seek to have our lives further shaped by the grace of the virtue of godliness. You have, if you're taking notes, you want a title, the title would be Godliness. So our text today, Colossians 3, is revelatory in that the Apostle Paul shines the light of the gospel into the depths of our souls to see what is actually there. Paul is saying, essentially, okay, let's plug you in and see what lights up. It's like um, it's like back in the day, back when I was growing up, we used to, every Christmas, we'd go up in the attic and we'd drag down all the lights and decorations, which we still do, but back in the day, we had these long strings of light bulbs, and somehow, mysteriously, over the summer, they would stop working. And uh, sometimes one would take out the whole the whole string, or sometimes there'd be various, and they'd plug them in and fix them. So, so it's kind of like that. Paul is saying here, let's see what lights up. Paul is Paul puts this challenge in most of his letters to the churches. And here's how John Stott explains Paul's challenge more precisely. These passages are stirring summons to the unity and purity of the church, but they are more than that. Their theme is the integration of the Christian experience, what we are, Christian theology, what we believe, and Christian ethics, how we behave. So it's not enough just to have had an experience. And it's not enough to just to have theology. You actually have to live like a Christian. To live like a Christian. So for that reason, it'd be hard really to overstate the importance of this passage in Colossians 3. It is such a key passage in all the New Testament. In one fell blow, Paul dismantles legalism and license. He undoes striving and worldliness by putting us on the road to godliness with soberness and joy. So if you're in Colossians chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 1 through 17. This is God's unchanging and inerrant word. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. May God bless the preaching and believing and obeying of his word. I want to relate to you a true story about fire. I shared this in the men's retreat in 2020. If you were there, I hope this serves you again. So the writer of this event says, when I was three years old, my parents and I lived in an old house. My bedroom was connected to my parents' room by a walk-in closet. If you opened the closet and walked inside of it, then there was a door that led into my room. While we were living there, my mother started having terrible nightmares. Every nightmare was the same. In, in the dream, she would rush to the closet, into my room, then grab me and dive out the window. Suddenly, the dream would flash forward and she would find herself sitting with my father in the waiting room of a hospital. A doctor would come in looking somber and say, I'm sorry, but your son is dead. At that point, she always awoke, awoke in a cold sweat with her heart racing. One night, my mother was awakened by my screaming. She ran into my rooms and held me in her arms. She was trying to calm me down and ask me what was wrong All I could say is, Mommy, Mommy, my room was on fire. I was on fire. After the recurring nightmare she'd been having, 
This really freaked her out. It was long before my parents decided to move and sell the house. About six months after we moved out, my grandmother called my mother. She started telling my mother there had been a fire in the house we used to live in. Luckily, no one was at home at the time. But the room that had been my bedroom was completely destroyed by the flames. The fire had started because of an electrical short in some wires in the walk-in closet. The little boy, now a man who wrote the account of that that happened, said, whenever I tell this story, I have chills. Indeed. Fire. Can you imagine waking up in your room being engulfed in flames? You yourself engulfed in flames. We sit here this morning, I have a concern that some of you are asleep to the fire of sin raging in your souls. Your soul is in peril. You have given yourself over to something you know to be sin, but through the deceitfulness of sin, through some strange algorithm of deceit, you have decided it's actually okay somehow to continue to live that way. I said some of you are asleep to the fire burning in your soul, but I don't need a prophetic impression to know that all of us are tempted by the fire of sin. None of us is immune to closing our eyes to sin and drifting off to sleep, to our peril. Here in Colossians 3, Paul is calling us to put out those flames by putting off sin and putting on Christ's own holiness, the grace of godliness. Paul is calling us here, offering to us here, a way to put out those flames of sin by putting off our sin and putting on Christ's own holiness through the grace of godliness. There are three points today. One, sin is fire. Two, how not to put out the fire of sin. And three, how to be flame-proof. Sin is fire. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 18, just after the promise of the Messiah, of the eternal God coming through a virgin, Isaiah says this, For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. In his letters, Paul lists quite a few acts of wickedness. In our passage, he lists ten sins that are fires that must be stamped out and put to death. And all Paul's lists largely fall into two categories. One is made up mainly of sexual sin. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Among other things, we're told not to covet in the Ten Commandments is our neighbor's wife or husband. And also sins that are expressed mainly, or at least initially, in speech, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Fire. Sin is fire. 
The word fire we read about in Isaiah 8, 9, 18 is a fire that consumes and destroys. This fire should bring fear to our minds, even a certain terror to our minds. We're not talking about fireworks or a campfire, or even a bonfire. We're talking about a roaring, all-consuming, inescapable devourer of souls. It's the power of sin, the life of a human being. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, describe perhaps the deepest and the most full expression of the sexual sin which if given head ultimately will lead to in one way or another. Romans 1, 26 and 7 say this, Because of this God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Sexual temptation is universal. Sexual sin is fire. Jesus said that just looking at a woman with lust is a sin of adultery. Nowadays, it's just too easy. If television and movies aren't sufficient, pornography is ridiculously available. The person who wants to play in the sexual flames of pornography has many hiding places. At home, when everyone else is doing something else, on the phone, sitting in traffic, eating lunch, even in the office, and it's easy to get a cop in the thought, well, no one's being harmed by this, no one knows, not that big a deal, not as bad as other people, nobody knows, nobody sees. It is bad. Men and women made in God's image were harmed by the making of it. God sees. God knows. It is fire. The flames of sexual sin can kindle in many places beyond just pornography and our secular culture. It celebrates immorality and actually encourages teens to explore their sexuality. Listen, it is easy for Christian parents to assume that my kids would never do that. You may have forgotten what you were like when you were a teenager. It's fire. Grievous when a young married couple has to confess they have given in to their lust before they got married. It happens too often. God's a redeemer. God heals. God forgives. The Song of Solomon warns three times not to awaken love, not to fan the flames of desire until the time is right. Listen, sex at any time is a fire. When the time is right, the sexual fire is glorious and wonderful and complicated, frankly. <laughs> For those who are unmarried, it can be complicated at times, and sexual sin before marriage, which can be forgiven and redeemed, can complicate the marriage bed. Don't want that for you. Fire. James says the tongue is a fire. James chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 say this, So also the tongue 
is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Paul is right to focus on verbal sin. We, we see clearly devastation in our society by the lying and slander of the political process, of those we have elected, of those who report even the news. Irresponsible political speech, irresponsible political reporting is ripping the, the fabric of our society apart. It is a fire loose in our culture. So let me ask you, <laughs> Do you, do you repeat the slanderous accusations you hear or read about in the news or social media? Do you just, are you a broadcaster of that without knowing? Are you, are you tempted to wade into unprovable conspiracy theories and then spread fear and suspicion through your speech? Are you so all-knowing that somehow you just know what really happened? I been around long enough? Yeah, they said that, but I know. Here's what really happened. You sit as a judge in the court of public opinion and slander and rail against people? Or do you trust him who does it justly? Vindication is mine, says the Lord. That's the place of peace. So, do you join in obscene talk, filthiness, or foolish talk, or crude joking? Ephesians 5.4 Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let it be thanksgiving. For the lights come on in thanksgiving. Are complaining and murmuring the go-to conversation starters for you? Do you walk into the room complaining? Yeah, this happened to me today. Because numbers, God, people murmured and God wasn't happy about it. <laughs> it had a bad effect. Gossip and slander, verse 7, chapter 3, just read it. Don't gossip and slander. Don't have malice or bitterness. Do you love to talk badly about people that tick you off, that upset you? Are you bitter? Hebrews twelve fifteen. see to it, no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. We speak out of the bitterness of our souls. Many are defiled by that, and we ourselves are defiled. Put it off. We see the fire of sin in our mouths and in our sexual lusts. And we do want to talk about being fireproof. But first, let's talk about how not to put out the fire of sin. Point number two, how not to put out the fire of sin. Well, a couple of ways we're going to touch on. One on is you don't give it more oxygen. You don't give fire more oxygen if you want to put it out. Michael Hoffman and one of his wonderful sayings that he said when we were building a bonfire down at Camp David, he said, listen, you may be able to blow out a match or a candle, but you don't want to put out a fire with wind. Immortal words that have stayed with me. 
Appreciate it, Michael. 2 Timothy 2.22 says this, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all who call on the Lord with a pure heart. You won't stop sinning as long as you are feeding the fire. So flee youthful lusts. Pull the plug. Throw the breaker. Turn off the TV. Leave the room. You must stop the practice of sin. You must stop it. E.W. Tozer put it well. He said it this way. The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience. Nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are the opposite sides of the same coin. Another way to not put out the flame sometimes could be to throw water on it. We instinctively think that water will extinguish a fire, but but an electrical fire, throw water an electrical fire, it could make it worse. Making up rules to fight sin is like throwing water on a bare electrical wire. It's not going to turn out well. This is known as legalism and self-righteousness. The self-righteous legalist draws a circle around what he does well and looks down on those who don't do them so well. And so he's left the cross, grounds the love of the cross, right? And now he does certain things that he thinks are really good. So he, in his imagination, he's up in this higher place. He's able to look down on the rest of us who aren't doing it so well and judge us and thereby justify himself. The legalists may ban TV or alcohol or all movies or go to extremes of fasting and self-denial or require certain activities and say, you're not doing it the way he does it, you're wrong. And Colossians 2.23 says this, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value of stopping the indulgences of the flesh. No value. What am I to do? If I give in to sin, the flames get worse. If I fight sin with rules, the flame gets worse. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of flesh? Thanks be to God. How can I get victory over sin? Well, we're talking about one of the means of grace to do that today. Number three, how to be fireproof. How to be fireproof. Now there's a reason this shaping virtue is called godliness and not holiness. Holiness means separated for God and His purposes, among other things. Godliness is the grace-fueled means that progressively separate us for God and make us holy. Godliness is the grace-fueled means that progressively separate us for God and make us holy. So Paul talked a lot about this in his, his pastoral letters, Titus to Timothy, and so we're going to read a couple of these passages 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. As, as Kirsten relayed to us, that, that training that we need. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life 
and also for the one to come. Godliness, we're going to talk about it. Godliness holds promise for the present life and the life to come in every way. So we used to have dictionaries to quote of the Bible, the good old days. Noah Webster defined godliness in his 1828 dictionary, and he said it this way. Godliness, noun, from godly, piety, belief in God, and reverence for his character and laws. So one, a religious, a religious life, a careful observant of the law, observance of the laws of God and performance of religious duties, proceeding from love and reverence for the divine character and commands, Christian obedience, and the, in this dictionary quotes a Bible verse, godliness is profitable unto all things. So Titus, look at Titus. Paul writes to Titus. Similarly, he says, Titus 2, 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Godly lives in the present age. Listen, this is the gospel. Grace appeared bringing salvation. We could not ever do it right. We could not ever do enough. God came as Christ in the person of Jesus Christ. And he lived a perfect life. He was tempted as we are and yet never sinned. And when he died, he took, not only did he take our sin on himself and cancel sin, but when he rose in his spirit and we were born again, he literally gave us his life. That perfect life, that sinless life, that life that is reckoned to God as completely holy, it was described to us forensically, it was given to us positionally, but also through the means of grace and godliness, we become transformed day by day into that image. That is the gospel. Listen, you may be struggling in your sin, you may be struggling with things in your life, you may wonder at times, is this going to work? Yes. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. He died for your sin. His power is within you. But he has these means of grace that you need to give yourself to. Not rules. Grace. You don't know Christ today. If you suddenly aware or you're aware you came in today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's the promise. He died for your sin. You give yourself to him and receive him and he will save you from your sin. In our passion in Col- pa- passage in Colossians, Paul calls us to set our affections on Christ. So we're, we're exegeting this, these 17 verses. So we see, first of all, Paul, having explained the gospel in chapters 1 and 2, he says, set your affections on Christ who you believe in. Then, because you're in Christ, put to death what is earthly in us, and then put on the nature of Christ. So that's the, that's the logic, that's the sequence of this passage. So after that, he immediately begins to describe acts of grace of godliness, which we can employ to help us put off sin and put on Christ. So he gives us where our faith lands, and then he gives us the runways of grace. We're going to go through seven Means of grace of godliness. 
We have your email. You received an email from me this morning that has this list and some references and resources that I mentioned on here that you can look at at your leisure. Seven means of grace of godliness. should have a slide for you that says that. The first one is repentance and confession. Repentance and confession. Verse 5 said, put to death therefore. If you are struggling with sin, the path of freedom begins with owning your sin and inviting the grace of God to bring repentance and change. If you're convicted of a sin that is mastering you, more than likely, not only do you need to confess it to God, you need to confess it to someone else. Often, when we walk alone in our sin, we are deceived by it. We don't realize what's going on. But if you bring it into the light, if you confess your sin to the Lord and someone else, you receive greater grace. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So often... That is where the grace comes. First of all, you, you humble yourself. God gives grace to the humble. You expose it to the light. First John talks about exposing to the light, walking in fellowship. And then there is this power of that person praying for you that you don't have by yourself. And often people struggle and send couples struggle in their marriage because they're not willing to bring people into it because there's a means of grace that you're missing. Second, the Word of God. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So we have various ways to do that. The preaching on Sunday morning is the primary time of discipleship in our church. Community groups, so important. We go there and we talk about it. Are you being a hearer only, deceiving yourself? Are you applying these things and being a doer of the word? And we have discipleship classes. We have women's discipleship teams. We have various ways that we together seek God. But what is vitally important is that you yourself have your own daily devotional time where you're studying God's Word. Daily, it is indispensable. Now, I've put some, I've put in the back table back there some, some reading plans. You can read through the Bible in a year or in two years or parts of the Bible. They're very helpful. It's not too late to start for 2024. Grab one, use it. Have that discipline to seek God daily in the Word. Also commend to you a couple of things. There's a Bible study app or Bible reading app called Sola. It's an app that you can have on your phone. I use it. Others use it in here. It's in that email I sent you. Then also the gift, the, the discipline of memorization of Scripture. Some years ago, I took a class from Jacob, and he, he exhorted us to memorize Scripture. I had not done that. I knew I should do it. And I began to do it, and it's been life-changing. It's a means of grace, of godliness. It's a godly thing to do. Again, commend an app called the Bible Memory App. It's in that email. Number three, prayer. So we pray in various ways. Community groups, we pray. We pray first Friday, pray. We pray here together. There's a women's prayer fellowship on Tuesdays. Sunday morning at 8, we pray. Those are many times you should be involved in. We had first Friday prayer. It was wonderful. God met us here gloriously. But you need that daily time with the Lord. Psalm 5.3, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. That's just got to be part of your life. Every day. Every day. It's the means of grace. 
it changes your life. For fellowship, verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another. So that's life of the body. That's all the time, anytime, all the time. Specific our community groups. That's the time where we share our struggles. We admonish one another. We teach one another. We help each other. Men's and women's breakouts where you can go deeper. Various times, that is fellowship. If you're not fellowshipping in the body of Christ, then you're missing a means of grace. Number five, singing. Verse 16 is interesting. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That is corporately, of course, but also privately. I mean, encourage introduce that into your private devotional time. Open up YouTube. Get a, get a song. Sing it. It, it will glorify God. It will be a means of grace to you. And let me just say, if you do not like to sing praise and worship to God, that could be a significant sign of sickness in your soul. We are commanded to sing. We see examples in Revelation of multitudes singing. It is glorious to sing worship to God. It is a telltale sign. And I would exhort you, if you're struggling with that, get some help. Talk to someone. Yeah, there's styles of music that we don't, I don't prefer and songs that get old and there's individual challenges. That all happens. But on the whole, that's a means of grace God would have you embrace. Number six, forgiveness and thankfulness. Verse 13, forgiving each other. Verse 15, and be thankful. And these really are antidotes for slander and complaining. If you're being aware of your forgiveness and forgiving, and you are being thankful, you will not slander. You will not complain. Number seven, read good books. Read good books. Read good books. I hear people say, oh, I just don't read. I just struggle with that. I think you're missing a lot. I think you're missing a lot. I think you're missing what God has for you. God has, over centuries, has stored up ways to help understand His Word. Yes, read the Bible first. Read good books. They are a means of grace. So let me, let me recommend a couple to you. This is called The Habits of Grace by David Mathis. It's about these things. You're thinking, gosh, I need to help. I need help grasping these things. This is a very, very accessible book. It costs $17 on Amazon. It's back in the back for $10. While they last, commend that to you. That's an application point for you. Teens and engaged couples. Sex, dating, and relationships. Um, Listen, I just beg you, parents. Do not send your teens into that, to fight that fire alone. This is, this is the best book I know, accessible, easy to read, 10 minutes per chapter. There may be other better books out there. But if you don't have anything, I just beg you, take time. Go through this book with your, with your teen. Or teens, get the book. Engaged couples, get the book. Think about it. You may not agree with everything. That's okay. But there's categories here that will serve you. And I have two of them. And I'll give them away to whoever comes and asks me for them, if you'll read them couple of resources I can commend to you that, that I don't have here. A couple of books by Sam Crabtree, Practicing Thankfulness and Practicing Affirmation. Two books. You read those if you're struggling with your tongue, struggling with the complaining. Those books will help you a lot. So you read those. You see those seven things, which are really nine or eleven things. You, you go, oh, God, 
I just feel overwhelmed. You don't, you don't know where my life is. It seems like drudgery. The Lord wants you to look past the obedience to see the beauty. He's calling you to beauty. He's calling you to himself. May 27th, 1992, in war-torn Sarajevo, one of the few bakeries that still had a supply of flour was making and distributing bread to the starving, war-shattered people. Exactly at 4 p.m., a long line stretched into the street. Suddenly, a mortar shell fell directly into the line, killing 22 people and splattering flesh, blood, bone, and rubble. Not far away lived a 35-year-old musician named Vedran Smolovic. Each of the next 22 days, one for each person killed, at 4 p.m., Smolovic put on his full formal concert attire, took up his cello, walked out of his apartment into the midst of the battle raging around him. Placing a plastic chair beside the crater the shell had made, he played in the memory of the dead, Albioni's Adagio in G minor. He played to abandoned streets, smashed trucks, burning buildings, and to the terrified people hidden in the cellars while the bombs dropped and bullets flew. With masonry exploding around him, he made his unimaginably courageous stand. Though the shelling went on, he was never hurt. There are places in our lives that can feel like bomb craters. We can feel totally defeated. We can feel like, yeah, been there, done that. Didn't work out so well for me. You can look at it as drudgery. Sometimes waking up early to see God and His Word and prayer can seem as fruitless as playing a cello in a war zone. Play anyway. Play anyway. God's inviting you into the beauty. God wants us to see these seven means of grace to godliness are actually ways to step into the beauty of holiness and transform the war zone of your soul into a Garden of fellowship with God. Acts, 13, Acts 3, 19 and 20 describes it this way. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. You may have tried these means of grace in the past and failed. God is calling you to a gift today, a gift of repentance. Step out of the bomb crater and step into the beauty of godliness. So we pray now for you to say yes to the beauty. Let's pray.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that is transformative in itself. Lord, I pray for all of us, Lord. We can all grow in godliness. In those practices that are fueled by grace. Lord, I pray especially for those who right now are derailed. They've told themselves they're too busy. They've tried and failed, but Lord, I pray today you would give them and us a gift of repentance. To see the beauty, Lord, to see the beauty of time with you, to see the beauty of knowing your marvels, to see the beauty of fellowship, to see the beauty of time together. Oh God, today, Lord. Let's just keep our head bowed for a few minutes. Give you a chance in your heart to respond to God. Lord, I pray for us all for those times refreshing from the presence of the Lord that freshly you may send Christ appointed to us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.